we want to move from the concept of platforming as a technical activity, like a technical set of components. If you instead move more towards this idea of designerly service design as the thing that platforming is trying to start to achieve in the world, we get to socio-technical platforms where what we're trying to do is optimize or co-evolve the social and the technical aspects of a system into a platform that allows the direct interaction of, again, the customers or the users of the platform in the instantiation or creation of the actual value. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi everyone, Stina Heikila here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. Today's guest is Jay Bloom, in conversation this time with Simone and Emanuele Quintarelli, Boundaryless EEO Microenterprise Lead. With Jay, we look into how increasingly in an age of technologically powered organizations, Thriving means the ability to enable the three economies of differentiation, scale, and scope at the same time. The key question is, what's the role of platforms and ecosystems in this shift? During the chat, we explore topics such as managing organizational commons, ensuring continuity between the organization and its ecosystem, decentralizing information, sympoetic versus autopoetic systems, maneuver warfare theory, cosmopolitan localism, the role of social practice and methodologies in institutional innovation, and so much more. We focus on the interplay between these trends and organizational development. Jane Bloom is part of the Red Hat's Global Transformation Office, where he serves as a senior director. He has been working to explore the complex interactions between design, innovation, development, and operational excellence in organizations for more than 20 years. Jabe is currently writing his dissertation in pursuit of a PhD in design studies at Carnegie Mellon University. His research focuses on the field of transition design and informs an ongoing exploration of the practice of design and strategy with a select group of international clients. Tune into this informative conversation as we learn more about Jabe's research and his theories on organizational design and platform thinking. As always, please give us a review to help other people find the show. Here we go with Jay Bloom. Hello, everyone. So we're back. The Boundless Conversations podcast, this time with a slightly unusual co-host, not my usual co-host, Stina, but uh, there is Emanuele Guintarelli with me today. Ciao, Emanuele. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. Emanuele, which is, who is our uh, microenterprise uh, lead on the Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Enabling Organization, uh, microenterprise. And today with, with us, we have Jabe Bloom, Senior Director, Global Transformation Office at Red Hat. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much, Jabe. We are really, really excited about this conversation, uh, first of all, because of the countless uh, exchanges we had on Twitter and, uh, you know, we had the chance to compare notes on our organizational development uh, practice, theories and ideas. And so I'm really looking forward to help our audience to also familiarize with your work that I, I believe is really, really interesting and important. So first of all, I would like you to start from 
some of your key insights on uh, how do you look into a modern organization in the context of the you know hyperconnected uh, technological and changing world that we are living and uh, one angle i think uh, that we should start from is really your, your way to offer a systematized uh, or a, a general uh, i would say a an approachable and clear understanding of the frictions, let's say, that in modern organizations one can encounter and lives between essentially the pressures towards differentiation and the possibility to create niche value, niche experiences, these particular experiences that the economy of today seems to be really made of. And on the other hand, the question of scale. So really, the usual question of efficiencies and uh, how do you manage you know an organization as it grows as it creates actually more growth and more opportunities to develop and, and deploy its value proposition so maybe you can you can start from from there sure so uh, i the set of theory that i usually deploy when i talk about this is something i call the three economies theory and it's based on the idea that in most modern organizations there are two economic theories at play um, and the two economic theories tend to confront each other in, in unproductive ways and create a situation where the firm suboptimizes by choosing one of the economic theories over the other economic theory as opposed to trying to deploy both. So those two economic theories uh, that we usually see at play are uh, an economic theory of, of differentiation. And the economic theory there, you could you could call it uh, an economy of innovation. Um, the reason I chose the term differentiation is simply to say that the economic value of anything that is produced in this economic frame comes from its ability to differentiate uh, the producer in the marketplace. Why, why would I buy product X over product Y? What are the differences? Have I created a valuable differentiation in the market to help the customer purchase or consume the product that I'm making. A lot of things you'll hear over here are things like agility, product thinking, um, differentiation, market fit, things like this. On the other side of the firm, um, almost all firms these days, you'll find a, uh, a scale play. Um, and scale, obviously, is the idea that we can kind of create value by efficiently reproducing common things. Um, things that we use frequently or things that are uh, kind of required inputs for products. Um, and uh, the idea of scale, at least in my mind, um, is that whenever we can find those those things that we repeatedly do, uh, we can perfect the, the creation of those things. The confusion of these two things, I think, is primarily because people fail to look at what the economic logic is managing. And in particular, in uh, the ec economic logic of scale, which is, I think, uh, subtly different than some, some of the ways people use the term scale these days, economic logic has to do with the, the resources being reproducible. Um, and also, uh, importantly, I think that economics of scale uh, require that the, the appropriate application economic scale has to do with the, the, the resources being consumable in use. Uh, so it's really important to understand this idea, I think, because what it means is that if you look inside of an IT organization, for instance, things like 
CPU pools, networking, storage, uh, these, these types of things are things, if they're left unmanaged, uh, can be overconsumed by the organization. And the detriment uh, of overconsumption is, is broadly applicable to the organization. In other words, uh, one team could cause problems for many teams in the organization. And this is largely because um, the way that, that we create scale economies these days inside of organizations, so we centralize the control of these resources into a single department, like central IT or something like that. Um, so what, what you'll see, I think, these days, if you go into many organizations, is this. Um, a movement from uh, highly siloed um, approaches, highly functionalized approaches, um, towards uh, value streams, cross-cutting uh, those traditional silos. Uh, and that's the product frame, the product family, product line frame. And then at some point, it's going to butt in those, those product lines, those value streams are going to butt into a centralized attempt to control uh, the cost uh, of, of maintaining these consumable resources. So the question ends up being, I think, and the friction point that ends up uh, happening quite frequently these days lies in the direct interaction of economies of difference and economies of scale. One side cry, trying to create what I would call variety and the other one trying to reduce what I would call variation. So really quickly get to go there really quickly and not dwell on it too much. There's a real confusion in the market, I think, about what ver the difference between variety and variation, especially when we look at kind of agile, lean, and these theories about how we control for things. In the traditional kind of Toyota framing, the importance of reducing variation, which is the unintentional change of those, um, those primitives, those, those consumable resources. So Variation um, has to do with not being able to produce those consumable resources in a standardized way, yeah. Uh, so that, that the quality of those primitives is assured, versus variety, which again has more to do with being able to create multiple products off of those consumable resources. So the ability to target niches and things like this. So, for instance, Toyota. Uh, cared very much about the reduction of variation, but they did that primarily to make their product lines and their 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 manufacturing lines capable of producing multiple models of cars to address multiple market niches. So they were reducing variation not as a cost-cutting concern, but as a variety-increasing activity. Anyway, so... Uh, those are two kind of conflicts I think we see, um, and, and organizations tend to lock up on them. The way that I try to convince people to rethink that um, is to say that there's a third eco economic logic that can come into play, and this is the economy of scope. And a, a scope economy is primarily driven by resources that, when shared, gain value. Uh, so it's a, a, a way of creating a commons is the traditional way of talking about this. And uh, the commons is a set of resources where, that are shared in common with both uh, your, your central IT department and your product lines, right? And the, the trick here is, I think, that if we look around in organizations, we do find resources that, that satisfy these two constraints. One, they're not consumed in use. And two, 
they uh, they gain value in reuse. And so uh, common ones are things like data, uh, well-formed functions, uh, and, and kind of platform uh, components and platform configurations. Um, and I think that the importance of kind of thinking through that ends up being things like there's a radical differentiation between three ways of managing these technical resources, uh, kind of product thinking being the differentiation thinking that we see in most organizations, service uh, thinking, uh, traditional IT, ITIL style service, risk reduction, concepts of service, and then finally, uh, in the scope economy, this idea of, of creating a platform um, in which the design activities become primarily about reconfiguration and the ability to reconfigure um, components to create value um, in, a, in a niche, enabling the differentiation economies. Well, amazing. There's a lot of uh, so many strings that uh, resonate on our side, you know, because uh, when I, while you were talking about uh, and inking towards this idea of scope as a way to reconcile, let's say, you know, these two these two needs, these directions of development, I was thinking to first of all uh, the, this idea of enabling that seems to be emerging in uh, uh, how we look at organizations, you know, from a new emerging perspective. So this idea that there is a, an aspect of enabling, uh, for example, entrepreneurship or enabling communities, enabling ecosystems to create value more than actually coming with, with the prepackaged product value that we, we used to have maybe in the industrial organization. So another topic that resonated is this idea of modularity versus composability. You know? So to some extent doing trade-offs in uh, modularizing our organization so that we can have fun composing it into something new. And uh, this is something that also resonates with uh, uh, the idea of designing for disobedience that is one of the pillars of our Uh, platform thinking, you know, the idea that uh, you design something that has uh, standardized transactions, but then uh, you try to make it in a way that lets the ecosystem to interpret or customize uh, the experience to their uh, flavor, to their needs, to their context. So can you maybe double click into this idea and this friction between, you know, Uh, sacrifice, sacrificing something to the altar of uh, modularity so that we have broader composability in the organization. And also I would like to ask you if you can also look into the very idea of the, of the boundary of the organization uh, from this point of view. So when I, because when I talk to you about this, I'm talking about uh, not just organizational model, but also business models. So, i know it's a, it's a long question, but I would like you to, to, dig, to dig into that. Sure. I think, so one of the things, one of the kind of useful ways of starting to think about a little bit about the design aspects of platform and scope economies is to think about uh, that there are multiple different def definitions of service design and service design ends up being, I think, um, one way to start beginning to think through what platforming could be. I don't think that service design currently does it particularly well, uh, but I do think it's a way of starting to differentiate these things. So, uh, you know, in IT, especially, uh, there's a traditional conception of service design, um, which is much more like your when you, when you sign a contract with your cellular provider, they give you an SLA, uh, they manage a certain part of the risk, That is a platform to some extent, right? Um, the, 
cell towers or a platform that they're selling access to. Um, and, and and the idea there, though, is that it's a purely service-based um, approach, right? So I don't get to help my local cell phone company uh, determine where to deploy towers or you know any of those types of things. It's not a co-design activity. Um, so that's, that's one way of looking at service. Uh, of course, inside of architecture, inside of software architecture, we have traditional kind of concepts of service-oriented architectures and nowadays micro-architectures and things like this that are also similarly focused on um, the containment of complexity uh, via interfacing, right? Um, the, the way in which we componentize and create components is a way of kind of managing the cognitive load of a team or making a system more kind of comprehensible for the organization so that they can kind of uh, isolate and, and manage the, the the complexity of the interactions they're trying to deal with. Um, I, I, I usually trace all of those ideas back to actually Herbert Simon, and to the extent that we want to talk about organizational design, one of the things that I think is most interesting is that the concept of componentization actually comes from Simon's study of organizational theory at, prior to software engineering. So uh, kind of componentization, the idea of components, the idea of complexity management, et cetera, um, as a way of dealing with componentization is, is from organizational theory to begin with. Um, it's from his study of, you know, kind of human organizational systems. And then it becomes applied to software engineering after that, which I think is kind of interesting. But the, the third way to think about it is what I usually refer to as designerly service design. Um, and what I mean by designerly service design is uh, the way that like, I'm going to say this to Italians and you guys are going to just, you know, have a meltdown. Uh, the way that, that that Starbucks is designed is a service design, right? It's a way in which someone thought through the co-creation of value with the customer. So that the customer has to perform part of the activity in order to become part of the value stream themselves. They have to like... Um, they have to, uh, the experience is partially co-created by the customer uh, performing in a certain kind of way. Uh, there is a kind of um, a way in which there's a deferred, um, there's a de deferment of the final configuration of the environment until a particular customer provide, uh, kind of presents themselves. And that customer explains how they would like their configuration to work so that it's maximally satisfying to them, right? Um, and, and so in this way, uh, you the service design is partially of the performance of service, the performance of the platform um, in the way that you might think of performance being um, capable of, uh, of improvisation, of, um, of, a, of reacting and interacting with a particular audience, right? So I think if we kind of move our idea of platforming, um, the, the terminology that I tend to use for this is we want to move from the concept of platforming as a technical activity, like a technical set of components. Um, things like you could traditionally see things like Honda's idea of uh, using the same frame of the car for everything from a sedan to an SUV, right? So that's the platform becomes that particular frame, but it's a very technical view of the world. Uh, which leads us into things like set-based design and things like that. If you instead move more towards this idea of designerly service design as the thing that, that platforming is trying to start to achieve in the world, uh, we get to socio-technical platforms uh, where what we're trying to do 
is optimize or co-evolve uh, the social and the technical aspects of a system into a platform that allows kind of the direct uh, interaction of, again, the customers or the users of the platform in the, in the instantiation or creation of the actual value, that, that the platform actually can only provide the components um, and that the performance of the platform uh, is, is for a particular audience or market segment or things like that. Um, so I think that's, that's one way to start thinking about like how platforming could start being thought of as being a intersection of organizational design and software architecture or software theory. Right. Um, and I think that's interesting. The, the other thing I, I would generally start talking about, I think, um, be, from my frame, of case, uh, because par- partially my frame has to do with the platform being um, at least initially inside of the organization. It's a way of like thinking about the platform tending to evolve as the way to balance these resources inside of organization um, or these constraints or conflicts um, is to say that that the the marketplaces that um, that differentiation and scale address are different marketplaces with different cycle times. So the marketplace of scale tends to be longer cycle time. Uh, that's how we get uh, the the economic efficiencies involved. But also, if you can't keep up with the cycles, so against again things like Moore's law, and you can apply things like Moore's law to storage and networking, et cetera. It's a balancing act in the scale economy of investing the right amount, purchasing the right amount of the current technology, knowing that that technology, that resource is going to be available in a year and a half for half the cost. So there's a, there's a, there's a arbitrage going on there of trying to figure out how to time the purchase and, and to understand frankly, that if we overinvest right now, um, we, we will own suboptimal technology in the future because we won't be able to purchase the future technology. But the other version of it being, if we don't, if we don't have the ability uh, to swap out these technologies with relative fluidity inside the organization, we we get lock in. We get locked into older technologies where we are basically paying a tax then for owning suboptimal. Uh, old technology. So you got this cycle time that you're trying to manage on that side, which has to do with replacement, graceful replacement. And and that focus tends to lead us towards the concept of componentization uh, that we see in software-oriented architecture and things like this. Isolation and replacement as being a, a critical aspect of platforming. Yeah? Uh, if we look on the other side, though, uh, and we start kind of poking around and trying to figure out how to think about the market of a differentiation, the cycle times in differentiation actually tend to be, I I usually refer to them as punctuated, right? They're not actual, um, like, uh, if scale has a regular kind of clock tick to it, right? Like it's a cycle. uh, Differentiation is actually uh, chaotic. It, It has to do with being able to react to market opportunities that do not present themselves on cycles, but instead may emerge from uh, dynamics in the marketplace. So actually, uh, teams inside of differentiation primarily just don't want their hands tied behind their back, because what they want to be able to do is swing and hit at the right moment, where the right moment isn't predefined. 
So part of the activity then of interacting with marketplaces and the, the what the platform can start to provide for them is an isolation of these cycle times from each other so that uh, the cycle times don't become entangled on each other, where one is highly cyclical and another one is highly oppor opportunistic. When these two cycle times entangle on each other, which happens quite frequently inside of modern organizations, uh, the organization can lock up um, and the platform is ends up being a way, I, I refer to it as platform as an interface, it's a way of isolating these two cycle times from each other in order to enable both sides to achieve the economic optimal point of their economic logic without having to kind of fight with each other over it. I was reflecting um, while listening to you and um, came to mind uh, a piece from 1968, uh, you know, about managing differentiation and integration, Lawrence and Lorsch. It's, uh, you know, a classic in organization design. And it really resonated with uh, this idea of differentiation and, 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 and scale. And we, if we look at Conway's law, of course, uh, we know uh, that what we see outside uh, should be, at least, uh, what we design for inside. Why is this becoming so crucial right now? And what is the difference of implementing, you know, the same concepts inside an organization and um, by looking at the market? Sure. The first thing to say is that when most people look at Conway or when they look at Ashby, uh, Ashby's law, um, they apply those laws as generalities, as, as uh, they look at the whole organization equally, right? And so part of my argument is that, in fact, you shouldn't look at the organization as being equal. You should look at the organization as being differentiated in, a, in, its, in, in its economic logics. And you need to understand that different parts of the organization will attempt to achieve different things. And if you if you take that viewpoint, particularly you take kind of an Ashby's viewpoint, right? What ends up happening is that as the marketplace, as the organizations grow to address more and more local concerns, they are those local concerns. The growth in in management of local concerns is Ashby's complexity, right? It's it's the idea that uh, variety is increasing. Uh, the 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 environmental variety that we want to address is increasing. And so we have to ingest complexity inside the organization. Uh, in essence, uh, the more complex the environment we want to address, the more complex the organizational structure needs to be in order to address it, right? Uh, there's a difference between my Nest uh, thermometer and a normal thermostat. So I think that what's happening um, inside of organizations and why platforming is becoming more and more important, frankly, is that uh, the marketplaces themselves are becoming more complex um, and they're forcing problems that organizations normally wouldn't have to address. So I think, um, you know, if you look at product thinking or product management thinking or uh, however you want to describe that, uh, it tends to grow uh, the seeds that it that it sends out tends to find fertile ground in startup land. Um, where people are trying to create new value in small teams, and et cetera. Um, and, and I think that's great. Uh, I think the problem is that as, as those things become successful and they grow into larger organizations, um, people try to maintain that same economic theory across the whole organization. So they want to organize everything according to product thinking, or, they, or 
uh, they get to a point where the product thinking becomes obviously not going to be effective at certain scales. And so they bring in scale thinking people, professional management, et cetera, who then implement efficiency and harvesting theories of you know, value harvesting, et cetera. So uh, you know, what, what, what do we look for instead? I think what we look for instead is the way in which the the way in which platforms create a fixed or constrained set of uh, kind of commonly reusable components and the way in which that fixed constraint creates evolvability. It actually creates the ability for the organization to keep on evolving and keep producing these product uh, things that they want. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't think that this is um, – I don't think this is generally recognized in most uh, as a good strategy in, in most organizations. I think most organizations miss this. But I do think if you look at the FANG, so you know, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Netflix, et cetera, Google, I think the, the primary difference that those technology companies have um, from their competitors is that they're effective at platforming. They, they have figured out how to use platforms well. I, I, I also think that platforming isn't like a kind of um, homogenous activity. I think there's different strategies involved in it. I think there's a radical difference between Amazon's platforming, which tends to be um, heavily componentized, uh, kind of very driven by theories like Conway's Law. Um, uh, it, look, you can look at that kind of version of it. You can look at Google's version of it, which is um, let let's basically – maintain a, a, a standard platform and then split off the companies um, and, and make Alphabet, but all, all those companies in Alphabet are basically running on the same platform, right? So that the platform becomes a way of kind of um, enabling a kind of portfolio of companies to interact with each other. It's primarily, uh, again, I think a scale or efficiency-based theory of platforming uh, in my mind. Uh, but I think they're very effective at it. Uh, and then you can finally look at Toyota and Toyota's ecosystemic conception of platforming, where um, they actually uh, developed ecosystems around them, where they determined that you know their goals around single piece flow and efficiency and the scale issues that they were having uh, were were primarily constrained no longer by Toyota's internal practices, but by the practices of the, their partners in the ecosystems. And so that they go out and then start developing uh, their partners um, in, in to create an ecosystem. And in that case, the ecos ecosystemic platforming has more to do with, again, uh, kind of a social interaction, a certain knowledge set, uh, a way of working um, that enables you to kind of start thinking of Toyota as being a platform for other kind of um, smaller companies to grow on top of uh, as long as they can meet the constraints of, uh, that the platform uh, requests. So I hope that's close enough to where you were looking for. That's amazing, actually. And because I, I was also discussing this with Emanuele in the background on our chat and uh, it sounds like, to some extent, uh, uh, your approach, or in general, the approach that you praise or you, you want to bring forth, and I'm, I must say, not only you, I mean, it's, it's like a new good cultural wave, let's say, you know, around how we organize. Can it be connected in parallel with, for example, what, what, what is the meta metamodern um, uh, political theory, let's say? So to, to look at the organization as a 
technology that uh, we must use uh, uh, serving a certain uh, uh, epistemic, I don't want to say a theory of change because that sounds too much postmodern, but I must say something like a, a way to embrace the challenges that, we, that are emerging in the world and will emerge in the, in the coming decades because that's what we're talking about. So, so my, my question is, how do you relate this with uh, also um, the politics of organizing in the 21st century? Sure. So I think like the, the, the primary thing to, to think through around kind of the, the political economy that we're pointing at, the political economy that we're trying to understand is through the 90s, through the early 2000s, the, the dichotomy that a lot of organizations were, uh, were struggling with were kind of could be defined as locality versus global, right? Local versus global issues um, in relationship to globalization. Um, so one of the, I think, key concepts to understand here is that um, if you were, uh, if you had invested in the conception of globalization, you were also kind of, in a way, investing in the theory that a universal system was going to arise and that you would be participating in that universal system um, and that that universal system was, a, was, was an, actual, a, an actual possibility that we, we would arrive somewhere where globalization would be a real um, activity. Um, I, I think Latour does the best version of, of what happens, right? Latour kind of describes um, the last uh, kind of the, the Paris Accord for, uh, for uh, um, understanding the environment. And he describes all these uh, politicians getting on a plane together and, and, and getting up into the air and they're all comparing notes about what their future was going to be, how much how much resource they needed, and how they expected to get the resources um, in order to maintain their their economies, their the the way that they their their lifestyles, their standards of living, etc. And at some point during the flight, they all kind of realize, wait, if you add up all the resources all of us think are available on the planet. That's not a thing. There's not that much resource. And they look out of the plane and realize that kind of the globe is gone. There's nowhere to land. There's nowhere to land this theory of globalization. Um, and so what we can see, I think, politically in a lot of places is the retraction from this conception of universality, that there's going to be a simple system that organizes the global economic system um, and that that's something that we can achieve. Um, I, you know, I tend to think of it as managerialism. Um, I, 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 when, when I, sometimes when I point this out to people, I say like, have you ever been in a server room with like, let's say 500 servers before and seen how people manage 500 servers? If we can't manage 500 servers, why do we think we can manage the total output of the global economy with a single system? It just seems like an arrogance that is, is starting to be realized, right? So now, now we end up with this like retraction to just local localism, which also seems again like uh, you know um, we're going to move from kind of a, a, a universal co collective conception to lots of individuals kind of participating in something like uh, an Adam Smithish version of the world. And I my hope is that what we can do is we can think of the politics is, is evolving towards a, a cosmopolitan localism. And what I mean by that is that the, the you know cosmopolitanism is the kind of 
self-governance of a set of localities that there's that that they're not an attempt to differentiate those two ideas from each other that that the local systems are 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 um, interdependent with these you know broader systems um, but the broader system isn't isn't a, a isn't a set of logic to be imposed upon the localities it's a way of supporting localities in their self-determination um, so I think that, that, that as we kind of move forward and we try to work through these politics um, in, in public, uh, inside of enterprise, inside of organizations, what we see more and more is the need for um, the avoidance of centralized governance, except in cases of consumable resources, right? Like the, that we need to minimize centralized governance as much as possible. Uh, while recognizing that it is appropriate for certain aspects, we need to, uh, you know, continue to uh, think about the importance of innovation and the way that innovation allows us to retrofit uh, according to emergent qualities of the of the world that we live in that are not predictable, and therefore it's important that we have innovation to deal with the problems that arise from from uh, the conditions of the world. But finally, that there are. Uh, and should be uh, investment uh, by both uh, the centralized system and the distributed systems into common resources that enable kind of efficient evolvability um, and that we we really think through kind of not just um, not strategy not just as kind of the 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 way that we think of strategy right now as innovation is uh, you know, using the firm's um, uh, capabilities to create or uh, uh, capture or, you know, all these kind of active terms that we use with strategy, that it's a projection into the world. Um, platform strategy is much more about uh, understanding the conditions and the co consequences of the conditions. What, what, are we, what are our current capabilities? How can we think about those capabilities uh, um, as a set of potential options that can be deployed to solve problems. And I actually, you know, it, to, to my mind, uh, you know, the, the challenge for most executives nowadays is that systemic view and not the strategic view. The strategic view to me, that, that kind of projection of the capabilities into a particular market, that is solidly, uh, you know, product management, architecture, architectural concerns um, that are important but they're not what uh, I think the executive should be focused on. I think the executive should be focused on increasing the options for their product management and architecture groups uh, so that, that they create more evolvability, more options, more opportunities uh, to deploy the capabilities into, into the world. Um, that, that is a different form of strategy, a different way of thinking about what the firm should be organized around. One thing that I'm really getting from the conversation is that we are uh, accepting to some extent that more complexity is raising and we have to transcend a fully specialized society, you know, overly globalized. And uh, I think at least, I don't know, maybe not everyone, but uh, a vast majority of, uh, of scholars or people that are doing organizational development are embracing that. But having said that, you know, maybe this is also another topic that uh, that uh, we're going to touch upon, the idea of social practice theory and how actually things change. But 
so given this uh, epistemic point of view and starting point, uh, what then? So uh, when we talk about brands, for example, in organizations, how they are uh, going to implement this uh, cosmo-local, cosmopolitical point that you wanted to raise in the conversation before. No? So how is this actually happening? How they are reconnected with their cultural context with the landscape? How are they going to build the resilience? Is it going to be just a matter of utility players or public bodies? Is the consumer market going to completely detach from these? And then purpose, Munella, add whatever you want, but uh, essentially the purpose is, uh, the question for purpose is also how do we fit into this new landscape uh, that is very hard to, to understand. I think uh, we understand that we are uh, trying to nurture a variety and to to acknowledge uh, an increase in complexity and so to distribute our decision-making uh, coordination strategy. What is left then? Uh, if we want to believe that business should be a force for good uh, and not just making money or maximizing shareholder value, but, you know, trying to create uh, something for the world, for a society, for different stakeholders. How can you do that? Can you do that? And uh, you didn't say that, but what I heard in your words, talking about uh, a systemic view is, uh, you know, this idea of enabling constraints, not, not telling uh, HPs or each people what to do, but, you know, the basic principles, the the, the, the basic uh, uh, boundaries uh, to inspire some kind of action. How is all of these uh, coming together? There's a couple of things. One is um, when, when we get to these larger scales, I, I tend to switch my, my theory up a little bit. I, I think there's two sets of theory that I would tend to deploy right now. One one is just uh, kind of uh, Ostrom's polycentrism. Um, and so that, that, that's just to say that... Um, People have a hard um, time understanding hierarchy, primarily because hierarchy um, tends to be captured by uh, kind of bureaucratic top-down enforcement um, of that scale-based uh, theory, right? Like that the governance um, aspect, it becomes a, a one-way transaction from the top-down and that that is kind of problematic. They tend to have, a, I think, a confusion about hierarchy, whereas what Ostrom point towards is what she calls polycentrism, her and her husband, where polycentrism is the idea that there are organizations uh, that uh, hold uh, power, hold efficacy uh, over certain parts of the, or of the world, and that there are distributed hierarchically. So one of the ways to think about it, again, is like, your local town probably has a council of some form. That is a center of power. Uh, they they live within some sort, at least in the United States, they live within some sort of state. Uh, that is another center of power. And then uh, kind of nationalities and things like that become other sets of power. Um, the, the, the criticism then becomes um, about the relationship between these power centers. And when a power center of a higher order starts perverting or uh, you know over enforcing constraints on localities that don't enable them in this kind of uh, you know enabling constraint way but instead uh, are constraining them in these governing constraint kinds of ways so understanding kind of the hierarchical distribution of power and that there are then I think 
different ontological concerns that each of these different centers would tend to focus on, where localities, their ontology would be much more physical, interactive, everyday life concerns. Um, And as we kind of move up hierarchies, uh, these concerns tend to become more uh, a long, longer time spans, longer uh, time frame concerns, but also I hate the word abstract for this term, but it, it's as close as I usually can get. So that uh, then we can kind of apply those same ideas inside of the organization, uh, inside of uh, most large organizations these days and start kind of thinking through the idea that the time spans for things like product teams, uh, product management, architecture, and then uh, leadership, uh, th- those are different time spans that I think tend to align to uh, different ways of working inside the organization, um, kind of operational and production concerns versus strategic uh, concerns about the commitment of an organization to a, a certain activity end state that they that the, they want to achieve in relationship to a local concern, and then systemics the management of the firm as a whole, the understanding of the capabilities and the optionality of the firm. And then finally, uh, to kind of pop out into the second set of theory that I think uh, is important for thinking through this stuff, multi-level perspective, uh, where we then start looking at the firm in an ecosystemic theory, uh, where we start seeing that the firm produces, uh, you know, goods that, are more or less differentiated, and in fact, often are replaceable by other firms. If we look at this again from a multi, multi-level perspective theory, which is a socio-technical systems theory um, that is kind of deployed in uh, Northern Europe often, what, what we end up seeing is regimes. Um, so we, we can we, we reimagine kind of these innovators as being organizations or teams inside of organizations that are looking for an opportunity to uh, become part of a stable regime. Uh, The stable regimes being these long-running cultural, socio-technical, social practice, uh, political organizations that are stable via convention or uh, or otherwise, uh, above that being a landscape, which are, are parts of the market that are defined outside of the control of the regime itself. So often having to do with politics, international politics, or environmental concerns. If we start looking there and we start understanding that firms don't actually currently have completely open futures, they actually have constrained futures, and those constrained futures are primarily constrained by the regimes themselves, then we start seeing significant amounts of inertia and the way that those significant amount of inertia create kind of market lock-in and things like this. So um, I, I usually try to differentiate those regimes into um, two different kinds of regimes, regimes of production and regi- regimes of consumption, where regimes of production are things like uh, regimes that produce energy and consume carbon in order to produce that energy Part of the reason those regimes are so incredibly stable is because what they're primarily valued for is their stability. So if the price of oil was incredibly volatile, it would be a less valuable way of providing something like energy to the consumption regimes. So consumer regimes tend then to be less about um, 
the creation and production of consumable uh, resources, uh, of basic resources that have to, that are, so like oil, for instance, or even electricity is not a directly valuable good for most consumers. I like, I don't usually buy electricity to use it directly. Uh, I have to have some devices to consume the electricity with. And, you know, then we get regimes of consumption uh, and the regimes of consumption are, you know, like an obvious one would be like the Apple ecosystem or something like this. Um, they rely on these regimes of production to be stable in order to enable the value creation that they use. And so you can imagine um, uh, the importance of uh, st stable electricity prices, stable shipping, um, stable supply chains, uh, stable factories to Apple. Um, th those, those four things that I uh, kind of listed end up being, I think, in the production regimes. And uh, Apple requires them to be stable. And then on top of that, there's all sorts of other people like Apple who are also building m multiple different regimes uh, that all focus on those uh, those lower uh, production regimes. And that means that they become very, uh, very, very stable and very hard to kind of knock out of, out of place. So that's my theory on how, how we need to kind of rethink how to get out of this stuff. But we have to we have to look at those bigger problems and, and understand those things. And I think very few organizations that I'm aware of can really think through these, these ecosystemic theories. Um, and, and I think it's very hard to think about, uh, primarily because I think people think about ecosystems and ecosystem theory from a autopoetic or they view, they still center the individual firm instead of trying to think of it as a sympoetic uh, system where the firm is in relationship to other firms and the evolvability of the firm has to do with the relationship with other firms. Um, and, and really starting to understand that then tends uh, to give us a new, a new source of stability, a new source of the understanding of where stability comes from, that it isn't a universalizing globalized theory, but is instead a present uh, relational theory an anti-foundational theory of stability of the market. So my question will be now around the idea that based on these premises, we may have to look into building new types of institutions you know, in terms of creating more institutional innovation. Because it seems like, from what you say, that uh, the existing ones uh, are pretty much constrained into their own affordances and you know, how they are made of, uh, why they exist. So in this uh, perspective, uh, what is the, the role of uh, uh, methods uh, in terms of methods of organizing, for example, the work we do? And uh, um, more generally, uh, the, the idea of, uh, for, for, also for incumbents, to use uh, those methods and, and creating more interfaces between them and society, you know, and also to participate in this uh, institutional innovation. That would be another reflection that I would like you to explore. The, the first thing to say, I think, is that, like, again, to frame it in the tradition, in the, the kind of dichotomy that I started the conversation with, uh, scale versus versus differentiation. I think because people think about differentiation the way they do, there is a there's a significant push inside of organizational theory right now to say we need to decentralize decision making. That we need to decentralize the decision making. My problem with that is not 
that it, it, it is in itself a bad idea. I think it's probably a fine idea to decentralize some decision-making. Um, but I think if you do it dogmatically, it's problematic. Um, the second part about that is just to say that organizations, when they hear decentralized uh, decision-making, in my experience, have a tendency to simply abdicate decision-making to the organization. They, 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 they decentralize the authority uh, without decentralizing um, the information or the ability to make those. So they don't, they don't think through things like, um, how do we make better decisions in a decentralized way? What information needs to be available to make these decentralized decisions? Who, who has that information, et cetera? Uh, so I think there's some, some problems with the, the, that, that particular frame. And then the final one is just this, um, around kind of the organizational theory, at least. If, if, if you follow my previous premises, then, then we get to this idea that I think that platforming and co-creation uh, of value or co-creation of commons or um, something that I refer to as recommoning um, means that it's not decision-making primarily that needs to be decentralized. It's actually negotiation that needs to be uh, decentralized. We need, we need to um, help people to better understand how to negotiate common goods, uh, that, that we need to help them identify what a common good could be, um, and we need to create uh, practices and methods for working um, together to create a common good that, uh, that has that, that, that quality that I referred to of defer, deferred value creation. Like the minute that you try to create a platform component that is specifically delivers value to only one cohort, then it is no longer, uh, you know, doesn't have the intrinsic quality of that deferred value creation, that way in which it can be reconfigured and, and recreated and the value can be instantiated in, a, in, in another locality. So I think... Creating a set of organizational methods uh, and ways of working around those things becomes really important. There's a huge set of value in most organizations currently uh, that could be recommoned. So if, if people understood the value of platforming and the creation of common goods, um, then they could spend some time uh, thinking about this problem. And the, the problem is that if if their organization currently only has two theories of economy, they only have two ways of thinking about the economic uh, economic value creation and management, then it's likely that they have resources that would be better managed in a common way, but they don't currently have a way of managing them that way. And so that means that there's huge amounts of value in the organization that's being mismanaged. In other words, it's a resource that should be commonly held or commonly managed and instead, it's being either managed inside of a central IT department via, you know, some sort of uh, rigorous control system that is minimizing its ability to be adopted quickly and therefore reducing its value because, again, kind of commons uh, gain value by reuse. They gain value by having more people use them. So if you hide them behind a governing body, they slow the value creation that they're uh, possible uh, to be created by. The other one is that we see inside of lots of organizations is that these common resources um, end up being privately managed by a, uh, um, a team that should be focused on a particular marketplace. 
uh, but instead end up creating something that would probably be better valued as a platform component, but instead they're managing that platform component within the product team and therefore, either they're doing shadow IT or, you know, some in some way hiding that value from other teams and or worse, they suddenly start trying to create a platform thinking team within the product team so that they actually end up having teams that are servicing other product teams directly. Um, and, and therefore, the teams themselves are then you know, being asked to manage against two different economic theories, uh, you know, differentiation and scale and scope. And often what will, of course, happen is that in a pinch, uh, the team will service their primary economic theory differentiation and, and shirk on the on the um, scope uh, versions of it. So uh, if I were going to build or if I were going to work on uh, kind of organizational design, organizational theory, uh, and institutions, uh, the ones that I think are most important are to, again, help people understand that platforming is not about centralized governance. It's not about central governance. It's about creation of components and shared value that accelerate uh, the ability to interact and create value in the world. Um, and to the extent that you see things um, where uh, the platforms don't listen to local concerns, you you start to see those platforms kind of um, have difficulties. I, you know, I think Facebook's interaction with multiple organizations throughout the world and their attempt to kind of force themselves into different societies is a perfect example of the way in which the platform has, in that case, has become aggressive. Uh, and tried to do centralized governance or you know top-down hierarchical forcing um, plays instead of value creation by again creating um, you know the potential for uh, the creation of shared shared goods. Those are the primary concerns that I currently have. And and again, I will point out I think that there's a radical difference between the problems that teams um, encounter when they are trying to service a customer. And the the types of problems that they encounter when uh, multiple product teams interact with a platform team that's interacting with a central IT team, the, that 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 problem that secondary problem statement is is of an order of magnitude of complexity larger, um, and it involves multiple interactions, multiple negotiations of um, of shared value. Uh, throughout the system in, in several different dimensions. And therefore, um, you know, what we, what organizations who want to do platforming need to do is they need to understand that that's a different way of thinking. There's different methods and different ways of working for that. And, and primarily, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in praxis. Uh, they need to create the conditions under which the organization can practice working in those ways. Because in most organizations that I work with, the interventions uh, will tend to be more focused. They'll tend to be either, uh, you know, an, an agile interaction or an agile intervention at the at the product level, or a you know an operational interaction with kind of a lean thinking approach inside of operations. Um, and less uh, common is is really the creation of. Um, of true platform engagement and the way that works and kind of the way that negotiation at that level has to happen. I have seen it uh, in several organizations now. It, it is becoming more 
uh, common, but it is not um, something that I see in most organizations. It has uh, tremendous implications from the perspective of creative entropy and purpose uh, of organizations, uh, isn't it? So if, if you embrace this idea that uh, it's really about the doing and the experimenting and then the letting people organize around the, around the commons, uh, then for the um, organizational uh, strategy, let's say, the focus, the purpose, uh, uh, it's really a challenge you know, in terms of how do you reconcile the idea that... Uh, value needs to emerge from the self-organizing of uh, sovereign uh, assistance uh, versus the idea of a company that wants to enact a strategy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I do think that part of this has to do with, you know, in my, in my dissertation, what I talk a lot about is the difference between uh, different time spans and the, and the way that people think through different time spans. And so many organizations that I engage with nowadays have given up on longer time span thinking, like five-year thinking or even two-year thinking, um, and they've collapsed down. So the ent entire organization is trying to um, operate in very tight time cycles. Um, and, you know, I, I think of this as like a way of saying that uh, you know, the, the thing that we need to do is sample reality more quickly, and, that, and then we'll be able to follow the market uh, quicker. I think that's fine to some extent. Um, I think right now, um there is a, there's if you if you look at it from an a uh an executive or organizational theory problem uh space you you end up in a slightly different place though because a lot of that kind of agility um that was deployed in the 90s and early 2000s uh, you know allowed certain teams to move fast and things like that it's all maneuver warfare theory um to some extent um and Maneuver warfare works really well if you can move faster than your competitors. But when everybody can e move equally fast, all it does is create chaos on the battlefield. You know, there's there's no stability of the battle space itself. Um, so I think that's why I think there's going to be and there needs to be a rethinking of commitments. Uh, and again, I tend to think of platform plays as being we're going to commit to creating certain components that will will be will endure not they don't need to become permanent but they will endure for longer than an experiment or a feature and they will have a stability that's created by the interaction of multiple product teams um, so that stability and what we put in that space becomes important um, and then you know we need to keep these somehow plastic so that they can uh, evolve um, themselves while accelerating the evolution of those um, separate teams. That's a, that's a kind of a midterm thinking. And then finally, uh, you know, from, again, from the executive view, from the, from the highest level view, where we start thinking about systemics and ecosystemics, these are, you know, about how do we create organizations that are sustainable, that can sustain themselves over a long period of time it, it, from the systemic and autopoetic view, but finally, I think, you know, with the, the types of political and environmental crises that we can, can foresee right now, that, that I think uh, you could easily argue that we are in an ecosystemic crisis right now um, that will accelerate, being sustainable won't simply be a question of being uh, profitable or being marketable. Uh, it will be uh, whether or not we uh, the organization is capable of understanding their impact 
on those environmental concerns uh, so that that the transition in our organizations will move from, you know, not just being purely uh, understood, understood as being um, one of profit making, but in fact, will have to eventually become, uh, if, if they truly want to be sustainable, will have to become, uh, re- have to recognize that those longer term um, commitments will end up uh, having to do with eco ecosystemic crises um, that need to be managed as well. Certainly, I mean, it seems like we should be witnessing those the emergence of those um, communities of practice around how we organize uh, in the 21st century. And it seems like to me that uh, to some extent we are uh, starting to see this conversation around uh, organizing. Um, still, I probably the space of investing into infrastructure and uh, uh, doing it at scale, uh, it's uh, fairly challenging, but uh, there are some experiments emerging, uh, at least in terms of enabling technologies. And uh, let me talk about uh, you know, Commons Stack or uh, Aragon, you know, those companies, that those uh, players that are trying to build uh, programmable organizing, let's say, uh, uh, pretty much around the Commons, as you, as you said. It would be interesting to see how existing incumbents uh, evolve to integrate some of this into their uh, missions. Uh, it would be interesting to see how new institutions uh, emerge, uh, new forms of institutions uh, emerge, like you know, credit commons or cooperatives or whatever, uh, uh, blockchain-enabled uh, something. It's going to be interesting to, to, to see how it, it unfolds. And uh, surely, as you said, how do we practice it uh, socially together? How do we learn from each other? This is our responsibility to some extent now to develop uh, as a conversation. So it doesn't, it's not going to come from existing institution, the, that new development uh, model that everybody uh, is looking for, I think. So that's, uh, that's really uh, a key point that we're raising in this conversation. So thanks about that. And um, then, I mean, just as a, as a final uh, reflection, if you have something that you you feel like uh, it's important to add on these important uh, questions that we have been debating. And then if you want to give us our, our listeners uh, a couple of pointers or where to look into your latest work. The point that I would try to leave people on is um, that this idea of sustainment, this idea of creating um, ecosystemic uh, the ecos- maintaining the ecosystemic possibility of human flourishing on the planet is entangled in these problems that we're trying to talk about right now. And that, uh, that the transition towards those things will probably require a significant um, new way of rationalizing action uh, on, on the planet, um, the way that we act on the planet. Uh, and that the, the you know the dominant uh, forms of rationality that we uh, inherit from uh, the Enlightenment have led us uh, very rationally to the place that we are currently at, uh, um, at um, on the planet and in relationship to our environment. Uh, I think design and the way that design works and the way that design thinking and platform thinking and these other ideas go about thinking about the world um, are are, uh, significantly different uh, than traditional rationalities. um, And we we need to develop those ways of being rational in the world with the recognition uh, that we're no longer uh, 
uh, primarily interacting as kind of humans in nature. And in fact, the primary interaction that all of us have today with the world is highly mediated uh, through artifice. Almost everything that we talk uh, about, everything we touch, everything we interact with um, is deeply, deeply um, entangled in human intention about what what people wanted the world to be like, um, not, in fact, uh, some sort of natural evolutionary theory of how it is. So with that being said, I think the thing that everybody should uh, take a peek at at some point is transition design. Um, and my program at, at CMU uh, is, is interested in trying to understand the, the transition between those two ways of thinking. Um, and, and I think that's important. If you guys want to see, uh, who I am, you want to talk to me more, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at, uh, Cytain, C-Y-E-T-A-I-N. And I have a website that I occasionally, um, update, uh, which is jabe.co, jabe, J-A-B-E dot C-O. Um, but thank you for having me, uh, to talk. I, I had a great time. Thank you so much. Great chat. Lots of important things that we debated, I think. Manuela, do you have anything to add? No, I really find it exciting and I hope um, many more organizations will uh, listen to your words and follow your your lead uh, because I think we need that uh, both for employees but more broadly for our, our world to become a more welcoming place. Thank you, Jabe. And to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Valter Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.